stand uh, for the reading of God's word. John chapter 2 verses 1 through 11. I'm going to read it if you can follow along. On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out the mother of Jesus said to him they have no wine and Jesus said to her woman what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Amen. You may be seated. Let me pray. God, we thank you for today. I pray that as we hear this word, that you would open our hearts and our minds. I pray for every single person who is watching, who is listening, that they would come to know you better. I pray that you would open up their hearts, that you would fill them with the Holy Spirit, and that they would come to see you closer, Lord. I pray for a closer relationship with you. I pray for our weeks as we move forward, that this word would be in in the midst of all that we do, and that we remember how good you are. And so we thank you in the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Today's sermon title is called Water into Wine. You know, for today, we're continuing on uh, a series, a small series on the life of Jesus, right? Imitating Jesus and and what uh, Jesus did in his life. And today, what I want to focus on was his first miracle. You know, when a president comes into office, there's this term that's called the first 100 days. And it was a term coined by Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And it's the idea that the first 100 days of a presidency are when they are most effective. It's when they can affect the most change and it's when they can do everything that they set out to do. It's the first 100 days. It's when their leadership style is super fresh. It's when the aura of victory is really powerful. And it's considered so vitally important that they have that term called the first 100 days. You see, the beginning is vitally important. It's why people spend so much time and effort cultivating a good first impression. You see, if you leave a good one, then it's only going to benefit you for a very long time. And yet, if you leave a bad first impression, man, you are climbing out of a hole. And that's why, when you look at this story, it seems so strange. It was the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. It was his very first public miracle. And if we are so careful in cultivating a good first impression, then it would have made sense for Jesus to do the same. And yet, here was the greatest leader in all of history, and the very first miracle was not walking on water, it was not raising someone from the dead, 
It was not healing a terminally ill person. It was making a party more fun. But church, one thing I want to remind you is that miracles are so much more than what we see at first. Because verse 11 says that miracles were a sign, and signs point to something more. And so what I want to do today is just look into this miracle and see three things that Jesus does. First is that he came to bring joy. Second is that he cares about faith. And third is that he points to the end. Okay? So let's do that together. First is that he came to bring joy. Verse 1 and 2 says this. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. You see, back then, weddings were a huge event. They would normally begin on a Wednesday, and they would last through the weekend. There would be a multiple-day wedding. How crazy would that be if it was like that now? You know, weddings, they're important now, and they're a sign of, of happiness and, and all those things today. But back then, they were, the time, they were considered the times of greatest joy and of greatest happiness, not only for that couple, but for the entire town. Because people from all over would gather together and celebrate for days and eat and be merry. And church, as we look into this, there's not much that we know about this specific wedding. But we do know that Jesus was happy to be there. He could have said no and, and gone off to do any other number of things. But he accepted the invitation and he was part of the joy that was happening there. I think for a lot of us, we have a misconception of what Christianity is. And especially if we've grown up in very conservative churches, we have an idea of Jesus as really standoffish. We think of Jesus as someone who's displeased with loud mu music and, and having parties. We think of him like a really strict teacher uh, who we can't imagine as a child, right? We, we think of Jesus as always having this furrowed brow and and in our minds, when we picture Jesus, he, he doesn't really have teeth because he doesn't smile, right? Or we end up picturing Jesus as this suffering servant who came to die and simply cry all the time. But church, I think what is really important for us to see here is that Jesus came to this wedding to laugh. He came to this wedding to enjoy and, and to smile and to be with other people. Look, suffering is a part of what Jesus came to do, but suffering is only a means to an end. And you see, church, the end is joy. I think we have to understand that that's our call as well. That suffering, there's going to be suffering in life, absolutely. But Christianity isn't about suffering only it's about joy and it's about enjoying life and it's about doing these things and enjoying each other and enjoying God it's about having a good time with each other and being joyful in the Lord a lot of times we focus so much on the suffering 
We focus so much on we should just be beating ourselves and, and we should be doing all these. But I think the, what, Bible, what the Bible continually says again and again is that we can have joy, is that we should enjoy each other, that we should eat a lot, that we should have fun, we should be able to speak with each other and laugh and, and be merry. That's a good thing. You see, there's a, there's a quote that I love. It's, the, it's at the end of Tolkien's uh, Lord of the Rings. And Samwise Gamgee, he wakes up after realizing that he's been rescued from the fires of Mount Doom. He sees Gandalf a little bit away, and he sees that he's still alive. And he says this, he says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. Actually, I thought that I was dead. Is everything sad going to come untrue? I think this is the truth for us as well. Because the Bible says that Jesus is going to take us to a place where every tear is wiped away. He is going to bring us to a place where there will be no more crying, where there will be no more mourning, and that there will be a new heaven and a new earth. Where he truly does bring us to a place where all the sad things become undone. Church, if you are going through something right now, if you are going through hardship, know that God does not intend for your suffering to be the end. For Jesus, his path went to the cross, but it ended at the open tomb. He may have suffered, but church, his beginning of his ministry was joyful, and the very end of his ministry was joyful too. It started with a celebration, and it ended with a celebration. And so church, I want us to know this and I want us to remember this as we move forward, that even in this time of coronavirus, that even in this time of hardship, that even in the midst of whatever you're going through, that suffering isn't the end goal. Yet in fact, Jesus says that we, he has come to bring joy, that he has come to bring happiness, and that we're able to have true happiness in him. That, that's the first point, that Jesus came to bring joy. Now, second Jesus cares about your faith. Verses 3 to 5 says this, When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. <clears throat> and Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. So, in the middle of the wedding, the wine runs out. And at the moment the wine runs out, Mary comes to Jesus and she asks for help. If you read this closely, I'm sure many of you guys have read this before. The response of Jesus is shocking. At least it's surprising. Because Jesus doesn't say, Mama. He doesn't say, Mother. He doesn't say, Mom. He says, woman. In a lot of translations, they try to soften it, and they say, dear woman. But it's not like that in the Greek. In the Greek, it's just pure of, hey, woman. You see, that response back then wasn't necessarily disrespectful, but it was extremely abrupt. And not only that, Jesus follows it up with, what does this have to do with me? You see, that phrase is used five other times in the New Testament. And every time it is spoken by a demon to Jesus. 
It's when Jesus intrudes into the domain of the demon and they say, look, hey, Jesus, you shouldn't be here. This isn't part of your business. It's so strange, right, when you read this. Mary comes to Jesus for help, and Jesus answers her abruptly in two ways. First, he says, woman, and then he says, this is not your business to call out my power. Now, the reason why we can't take this at surface value, and the reason why we have to go deeper than this, is because after he says this, he does the miracle. Now, if he was abrupt to Mary and he didn't do anything, then his words would make sense. Look, we wouldn't need to read any further into it because he says, look, woman, you you did this and and you can't shoot, call me out, and so I'm not going to do anything. And if you didn't do anything, okay, that's the end of the story. And yet what we see is that Jesus says these things and yet he does the opposite. He says, don't call me out. He says, don't make me do these things. And yet he does them. It's supposed to make us ask why he spoke this way to Mary. See, church, the reason why Jesus spoke this way is because he wanted to make a clear line that his allegiance and his obedience is not to any one person in the world. It is completely dependent upon God. For him, his mother and his physical family had no special advantages to guide his ministry. And they had no special advantages to how he gave his salvation. You see, during that time back then, everything was dependent upon your family. If you were born into a rich family, then you received every single benefit of the world. And yet, if you are born into a poor one, then you... then your life was already determined. And even today, we see that where you are born to gives you a lot of favor or it can bring a big curse into your life. But here we see that Jesus completely rejects that theory, that he completely rejects that type of thinking. In Luke 11, there's this woman who in the crowd raises her voice and says to Jesus, Blessed is the womb that bore you. But Jesus says, no, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. People thought that there was going to be this special spiritual advantage in being the mother of Jesus. But he immediately cuts off that assumption and focuses attention on the people. You see, Jesus does not play any favorites. Church, this means two things for us. First is that it doesn't matter how godly your parents are. It doesn't matter how faithful they are to the Lord. Because God does not play favorites with your salvation. And you know what? I can speak from experience in this. My entire family is in ministry. My father is a pastor. So is my brother. So is my sister. And yet that has no bearing upon my own salvation. He doesn't give out extra favors to me because of that. What he does is he cares about your faith. And this is going to be the same 
And this is such a blessing, I think, for a lot of us. Because it doesn't matter how ungodly your parents are. It doesn't matter if your family has fallen away from the church. It doesn't matter if your parents have rejected the Lord. He is not going to give curses upon you. He is not going to withhold salvation simply because of the sins of your parents. What he cares about is not family. He cares about your faith. In the Bible, people were calling to Jesus and they were saying, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answers them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and here are my brothers. Church, this is what we see in this passage. When he says, woman, what does this have to do with me? He's not being abrupt for no reason. He's not being this way for no reason. He's saying to Mary, look, your relationship as my mother has no special relationship here, has no special weight here. Because at the end of the day, my father in heaven determines where I go. I am not bound by any circumstance in this place. I am not bound by any person here. I am not here to give special favors or play favorites in any way. I am bound only by the will of the father. And I've come to do one thing, and that's to die for your sins and to rise again. The focus of Jesus is not on your family, it's on your faith. That's the second thing. And the last thing I want to point out, church, is that through this miracle, Jesus points to the end. Verse 4 says, Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. One thing that we know is that Jesus does not act rashly. He doesn't change his mind on a whim, or he doesn't do things for no reason. And that's why for me, for a long time, I had a hard time with this verse. Because it seems like Jesus didn't want to help, but suddenly he changes his mind and he does it. But the more I studied this passage, the more I realized that Jesus was pointing to the end while everyone else was thinking about the present. When Jesus said, my hour has not yet come, you see, church, he was thinking about something else. Let me give you an example. You know, uh, I don't want to point this out too much, but Pastor, we have a Pastor Joe over here. We have Joanna up there. Uh, they just celebrated their four-year wedding anniversary. Man, that's crazy, right? Seriously, that's awesome. Um, I, I vividly remember their wedding. Uh, I mean, I was in it, so I, I should remember it. But um, I am now also uh, at the tender age where I have uh, been to quite a few weddings, right? <laughs> where a lot of my uh, friends around my age have already gotten married who are sending out wedding invitations, and, and I've gone to a few. And when you're single and you go to a wedding, there's one thing that you tend to think of, and it's your future wedding. You see, there's a half of you that is enjoying the wedding. There's a half of you that's 
enjoying the festivities that are happening and you're, you're so happy and you're so excited and all that kind of stuff, but there's a half of you that's just a million miles away because you are thinking of another time in the future because you're thinking of your own time. See, for here, in this passage, Jesus, he isn't thinking about that wedding. He's thinking about a time that he knows is coming in the future. When Mary says, hey, Jesus, we need more wine. And Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. When we look at it in just this context, it doesn't make sense. But you have to look at it in the context of the entire gospel. Because Jesus isn't confined to the present day. He's not confined to just this hour. But he knows exactly what is to come. And so for him, he knows that in the future there will be a time when his hour does come. And there are multiple times when this phrase comes up again and again. In John 7.30 it says, At this they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. John 13.1 says Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. You see, when Jesus says, my hour has not yet come, he is speaking not of the wedding, but of his death. Because Mary would not have known this. How would she have known? But when she says, look, the wine has run out. We need to get more wine. She was only thinking about that wedding. But for Jesus, he knew when he saw the wine that it would remind him of something very special. It would remind him of the Last Supper. It would remind him of the days before that he would die when he would hold up the cup and say, this is my blood. Drink this in remembrance of me. And church, I can connect it further. Look, it says in this passage in verse 6 that he doesn't use regular water jars, but he uses six water jars used for Jewish rites of purification. This was not drinking water, but this was water used to clean the Jewish people so that they could enter into the temple. You have to believe that there would have been water available, especially at a feast that big. And yet, Jesus purposely calls out and uses these six water jars that were used for purification. This was water that was used to remind the people of how sinful they were, that they needed the water to cleanse themselves, that they would only be able to use the water in order to get close to the Lord. And yet, Jesus uses that water that was meant to remind the people of how sinful they were, and he turned it into wine, that was used to bless them. And you see, church, I am more than sure that Jesus knew that before he did this miracle, that he would remember a different miracle that happened in Egypt. Because during the ten plagues, you see, God, he curses the water. And he curses the water by turning it all into blood. And it was a way of bringing judgment upon the people. It was a way to bring death 
and destruction because the people were unfaithful to him. And so what he did is he cursed the water and he turned it into blood. But here, we see the complete opposite happening. Here we see that Jesus completely turns the table. And we see that this water that was only meant to be a reminder of our sin, this water that was meant to be a curse upon us, that it would turn into this blood of blessing. That was supposed to turn into this blood of salvation and of joy and of happiness. See, Jesus, he is not bound by any time. He is not bound by space. He is the everlasting God. And in all that he does, church, you have to remember that he is pointing always to the end. That he is pointing to his father's business. But the reason why it was difficult and the reason why for him it was so hard for him to go through is because in order to give us that cup of joy, in order to give us that blessing, he needed to be given the cup of suffering. And we saw how difficult that was for him. We saw that in the garden he would say, look, if it is possible, if it is possible, please pass this cup away from me. This cup of judgment, this cup of pain, this cup of death. And yet he was obedient to the Father's will. And because he knew that at the end, that it would give ultimate joy to himself and to the people, he was willing to endure the cup of suffering. Church, I think this is so important. This is a series, it can seem, of unrelated events. But for Jesus, he saw the very end, even at the very beginning. Now, I just want to end on this last point. Just one application point, if I can. I want us to really look at the response of Mary. And I'm sure that as his mother, that it wasn't easy to hear uh, her son say something like that. She came to him with a normal request, with maybe even a legitimate request. And he abruptly almost rudely responds to her. It wasn't the response that she expected. It wasn't the response that she hoped for. And yet, it says that she turns to the servants and says, do what he tells you. Church, she had the faith to trust even when she didn't understand. She didn't know what Jesus would do but she knew that he would do the right thing. She knew that even though he didn't, she didn't understand his words, that even though it seemed a bit out of character almost, that it seemed almost a bit strange for her, she still trusted in who he was, and she still trusted that he would do what was right. I believe that this is a word for one of you, for many of you maybe who are tuning in right now, because there's a lot of things that maybe you're going through in this moment. 
and you have prayed and you have prayed and you have asked God for something and yet he answers you abruptly. He answers you in a way that you did not expect or hope for. And the question now comes down to, are you still going to trust in the character of God? Are you still going to trust that even if you don't understand, that you trust that he is going to do the right thing? Are you going to be able to say, I don't understand, but I trust you? Look, even in the cloudiest and darkest times of your life, Jesus, he will honor the obedience of his children, even when you don't understand. So church, that's all I want to end with today. That he doesn't work randomly. He doesn't work out of just random, seemingly things that are happening for no reason. And yet what we know is that Jesus, even from the very beginning of his ministry, that even when it may not even seem like it makes sense to us, he was pointing to the very end. That even in the very first miracle, it was a, simply a sign pointing to the ultimate joy that we would experience. And so church, what I want to encourage you in and what I want to really push you towards is, man, have joy in the Lord. That even in the midst of suffering, you can have joy. That even in the midst of pain, you are able to be happy. So trust in the Lord and know that he has a plan and a purpose, that he had a plan and a purpose in this miracle and he has a plan and a purpose.